Hey, good morning. Good morning. Peace be with you. It's good to be with you guys. Thanks for coming out this morning. It's good to, it's good to be here with you guys. Uh, if this is your first time here, my name is Garrison, and I am one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. Very glad that you're here. If you want to open your Bibles with me, we're going to be looking at 1 John 1 John 2, 7 through 11, 1 John 2, 7 through 11, open from the back, it's near the back of your Bible, 1 John 2, 7 through 11. If uh, this is your first time here, or even if it's not your first time here, if you haven't gotten connected with what God is doing here in our church family, I encourage you to just take a moment and fill out the uh, connect card that was inserted into your bulletin that you received when you walked in this morning. It's a good way for us to know a little bit about you, how to get in contact with you, learn how we can be praying for you. So please uh, take a moment, fill that out um, at some point in time throughout the service, and you can give that to me or another leader you've seen up here, or there's a bucket uh, at one of the tables out here. There's a black box at one of the other tables out here. You just drop it in any one of those things, and that, that, uh, that'll Uh, get to us in one way or another. We'd love to learn how we can be praying for you, how we can get in contact with you and all that. All right, let's dig into uh, 1 John 2, 7 through 11. I know you just sat down, but I'm going to ask you to stand up again for the reading of God's Word. Let's listen with reverence and with joy, because this is God's Word. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Your love is infinite and eternal and immeasurable. As the hymn writer said, Could we with ink the ocean fill, or were the skies of parchment made, were every tree on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write your love would drain the oceans dry. Could no scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky? Love of God so rich and pure, so measureless and strong. You have loved us, the loveless, by sending your Son. You have saved us, you have forgiven us. Christ has stooped down and served us and loved us to the end. 
that you let that love, that demonstration of love warm our hearts this morning. Not only that, but, but what you make Christ a source of love within us this morning so that we might reflect your love to one another and to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, this is our fourth installment in this sermon series, Walking Through First John. John is writing to these churches scattered throughout Asia Minor uh, who are in a sort of crisis. These churches are in a sort of crisis. Uh, they, they're experiencing persecution externally. But what seems more concerning to these churches and to John is the fact that they're experiencing division, false teaching internally. And false teachings that would later uh, come to be known as, as Gnosticism and, and Docetism have crept into the church and, and they've led many astray. Even some leaders in their midst have led them astray. And so John writes this letter to Assure the churches to the, to, the sheep, to the true sheep who have stayed. And he writes to them to comfort them by giving them assurance of their salvation. To give them assurance that they have indeed believed in the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. To give them assurance that they have the true truth about God and about us and about the world that we live in. And as we've seen, John begins the body of this letter by telling these churches about God. We saw this in, in 1 John for, uh, chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, John says, he begins this body of the letter by saying, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That is to say, God is, is pure goodness, pure righteousness. He doesn't merely have goodness. He is goodness. He is righteousness. There's no like outside measure by which we measure him with, no outside measure of goodness by which we measure him. He is goodness. He is righteousness. And what we've been seeing as we have slowly walked through these sentences and paragraphs that follow that sort of header, God is light and in him is no darkness at all, is, is what it means for the Christian life to, to, for us to say and believe that God is light. We've seen that it means that we, as God's children, ought to walk in the light. We ought to be children of light. We are children of light. And first, we saw John tell us how to walk in the light. And it means that walking in the light means that we ought to be honest and transparent about our sins by confessing our sins, not lying about our sins, not denying our sins, but confessing our sins and saying the same thing about our sins that God says about our sins. And John said that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And last week we saw that, that we not only confess our sins in order for them to be forgiven— but we confess our sins in order to forsake our sins. We confess our sins in order to trust in Christ and to grow in obedience to Christ and to grow in following, faithfully following Christ's example that he set forth for us in his life and death. We trust him and obey him and follow him as our example. And now here in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, continue to see what it means for us to walk in the light, to walk in the light as children of God, 
children of the God who is light, to walk in the light means that we obey this old, new, old slash new commandment. Now, if you like puzzles or riddles, you probably like this passage. Because John says, I'm not writing to you a new commandment, but an old commandment. But at the same time, it's a new commandment. I'm writing this to you. And, and then you look at chapter 1, chapter 2, and you go, I don't see any commandment. There's no imperatives here. I don't see any imperatives. I don't see any commandments in chapter 1 or 2 so far. What commandment is he talking about? It's this old commandment. It's this new commandment. It's like a riddle. What is he talking about? What is this commandment? It's old, but it's also new. John is writing it, but it's not been written anywhere so far. What is it? Well, John's not trying to be confusing. The reality is is that his original hearers knew precisely what he was talking about. No worries, we we can easily pick up on it ourselves because John gives us some hints to to indicate what this old new commandment is. First, just the fact that he calls it a new commandment should bring to mind something specific that Jesus said in John 13 where he said, a new commandment I give to you. And then when when Jesus gives us this commandment, it it sounds all like awfully familiar. Sounds very, very familiar. Like we've almost heard it somewhere before. Sort of like it's an, an old, it's an old commandment. Furthermore, John says here in verse 10, he says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there's no cause for stumbling. The commandment that John is referring to seems to be concerned with, with a Christian's love for other Christians, for their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, you can turn in your Bibles or you can just open your bulletin and you'll see it at the at the inside uh, left bottom of the page of your bulletin. It's from John 13, 34. This is the commandment that John is referring to. It's very clear. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. This commandment is a commandment to love your brother or sister in Christ because and in the same way that you have been so loved by Christ Jesus. So that's what the commandment is. But that still doesn't answer everything. How is it an old commandment while also being a new commandment? How is it a new commandment while also being an old commandment? How does this fit with John's overall purpose for the letter to give assurance to true believers? And how can we specifically obey this commandment to love one another today? These are all sorts of questions that we, all sorts of important questions that we need to answer. So let's dig in and try to put this puzzle together to find some answers. First, we'll look at verse 7. John writes about the old commandment. Look at the old commandment. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning... The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So Jesus says it's a new commandment, and John's going to say the same in a moment, but first John says it's an old commandment, and it is. It's a commandment that his hearers, no doubt, will be familiar with. He says you've heard it from the beginning. You've had it from the beginning, meaning that from the beginning of their Christian walk, from the moment they were converted to the faith, the moment their church was planted, they've had this commandment. And he says, the the old commandment is the word that you have heard, meaning that from the moment that Paul or whomever came to their town, this has been a part of the message. 
Whenever Paul or or whatever church planter came to their town preaching about Christ, about his birth, about his life, about his death, about his resurrection, about his ascension, about the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body and the dawn of the new creation having come, they also heard this message, you ought to love one another as Christ has loved you. But what's more is that this commandment, it goes even further back than that. It's not all that that John means when he talks about how this commandment is an old commandment. This goes further back than their conversion or when Paul came to town. It's a commandment that goes even further, further back than the earthly ministry of Jesus. This is an old, old commandment. It's a commandment that goes all the way back to Moses. Leviticus 19.8, we read it earlier. We see the Lord say to the prophet Moses, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is an old, old commandment. Now, why is John saying this though? What is he trying to get across to his readers? He's trying to show them that this faith of ours, this is, this is not a novelty. This is, this is not a modern experiment. You see, the Gnostics were teaching something new and something novel. We've already kind of talked about the Gnostics a little bit. They were teaching something new and something novel. They were obsessed with finding the sort of secret, unrevealed truth of the world, knowing that they they believe that that only the elite and up-to-date knew it. In fact, the word Gnosticism comes from this Greek word used so many times throughout this letter, the word gnosko, translated as to know. We see that word all over 1 John, to know, to know, to know, to know, to know. He uses it tons. Gnostics had thought that they had uncovered the the deeper spiritual truths of the universe. They thought that they had uncovered the sort of special knowledge. And they didn't believe that the true truth about the world had been revealed in Holy Scripture. Instead, they thought that there was a hidden truth that needed to be discovered by these really enlightened people. And they were telling those who stayed in the church, you don't have the, the true truth. They were saying, you you don't have the true story about God, about yourselves, about the world. So John reassures his readers. He says, God has revealed himself and his gospel and his commandments. He's revealed those things to us. This faith that we hold fast to, these commandments that we desire to obey and are fighting with all of our might to obey, they are not new. They are not novel. They are not hidden. They are old. They are tested. They are revealed. I know in our time and place, we we constantly hear similar voices, whether they come from the latest pop psychology, the latest nutritional discoveries or physical health discoveries, popular politicians, popular political or economic theories or whatever. We're constantly hearing from podcasts and blogs and journals and Facebook and politicians and public figures that they found this secret to what will truly make us flourish and will truly make us happy as human beings and will truly make for a just utopian society. 
And John says, no. Look at the old commandment. In essence, he's saying with the prophet Jeremiah from Jeremiah 6.16, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Ask for the ancient paths. That's where the good way is. Walk in it. It's there that you find rest for your souls. It's there that you find true human flourishing, true relational flourishing. Don't take vengeance. Don't bear grudges against your people, against your brothers or sisters in Christ. Instead, love your neighbor as yourself. This is an old commandment. This is the ancient path. This is the good way. Walk in it. Walk in the light. But then this is not only an old commandment. John says it's also a new commandment. He says in verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining So it's an old commandment. It's old. It goes all the way back to Moses. But according to Jesus and now John, it's also a new commandment. How can that be? Is it a new commandment simply because Jesus repeated it? That may be true, but that's not what John is getting at here. Notice what he says. He says, it is a new commandment I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The dawn of the new creation has come in Christ Jesus. It's, in, in other words, it's, it's a new commandment because the light of the world has come. God has shined his light on us through Jesus Christ. He has come and shown us what true love looks like. And not only that, but he has become the source of true love for us. In our hearts, this is the commandment that's true in him, John says. The light of the world has come and he's demonstrated for us in a way never seen or even even fathomed before what true love is. He is true love revealed. It's a new commandment because Jesus has given a new quality and depth to it. He's given a a new quality and a new depth for how we define love. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. If you want to know what true love is, looks like. If you want to find true love, look at the cross. That is where Christ died because he loved the unlovable. You and me. That is where Christ sacrificed himself for us so that we who were once his enemies would become his friends. Look at him, he's hanging there, beaten, bloodied, naked, being utterly humiliated. Look at him dying, all because he wanted you. Because he wanted you to be forgiven. Because he wanted you to be reconciled to him. 
Because he wanted us to be transformed into a kind of, the kind of humanity that we were meant to be. This is a commandment that, that is true in him. We see it in him. We've seen him give new quality and depth to it. But then not only has Christ revealed true love to us, but he's also the source of true love in us. In our union with Christ, he makes us, he transforms us into the kind of humanity who not only marvel at his love, but also reflect it to one another. Apostle Paul, he says, says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, part of God's new creation humanity. Given new new abilities and capability and, and capacity for love been brought from death to life, darkness to light, hate to love. And because of that, John also says that this commandment is true in you. It's true in him and it's true in you. That you is actually plural, by the way, too. It's not something we readily see in English translations since we use the word you in both singular and plural ways. But We typically just read things individualistically. So we think of this in the singular, but perhaps we could say it is a new commandment that is true in him and true in y'all. If you want to use Southern Ohio language, it's true in y'all. Because of what Christ has done for us and because of what he has done in us, it is true in us as well. You know, in all reality, because this is a very old commandment, many people all over the world know it, and many even hold it in high esteem. Like, I guarantee that if if we were to go out on the street in Dayton, Ohio, and survey the amount of people who think that we ought to love one another, most would know of this commandment, and probably close to all of them would agree that it should be obeyed. But my friends, John is saying that Christians are those who not only know the commandment, and Christians are are not only those who revere the commandment, who think well of it, who think it's a good idea conceptually. Christians are those, to use the language of Jeremiah 31, 33, Christians are those who have God's commandments written upon their hearts. Christians are those who who have this commandment to love one another written on, on their hearts. Christians are those who love one another. Christians love the family of God with a quality and depth unknown to those without Christ. This is actually a necessary fruit and evidence that we are indeed in Christ. If it's not a fruit and evidence of, of if it's not real in our life, then, then we could hardly be called Christians, Jesus says. He says, John says, uh, John 13, 35, Jesus said, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. It's a necessary fruit of being in Christ. It's a necessary fruit for those who are in Christ. Now again, similar to what we discussed last week, don't be confused. Obeying this commandment is not at all what gets you into the family. The commandments of God, which are good and ought to be obeyed, the commandments of God are still not the gospel. 
our obedience to God's commandments in no way contribute to our salvation, in no way contribute to us being included in God's family. We are, as we say all the time around here, we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We stand before God complete, declared righteous as his beloved children without our obedience contributing to a thing. However, that great grace in one way love that God has given to us in Christ always forms and creates a transformed people who love one another. Because we come together as a people who are already accepted, already so loved with such a great, immeasurable, unfathomable love, we come together as a people who love one another in a way that testifies to and reflects that love. One pastor says very often, Tim Keller, he says, the, the religion, typical religion is, I obey and therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. That acceptance creates a genuine obedience. You're saved into a community, into a family, into a people that genuinely love one another with a love that reflects and testifies to the quality and depth of Christ's love. It's not a requirement for getting in, but it is a necessary fruit for those who are in, and it is a powerful piece of evidence that you are truly in. It's proof that God has shined his light on you through Jesus Christ. It's proof that Christ's love has truly affected you and transformed you. It's proof that God has taken away your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh with his own commandments written upon it. And so that's why John, our third point, John says that this is a test. This is a test. This is a test to see whether or not one is truly, authentically, genuinely a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, if you've read through this book, you've, you've probably noticed a series of tests like this. We've actually already walked through one. We'll see more in this, the one, pre, this, uh, one present in this particular text we're looking at right now. It's here. There's a test. There's a series of tests. But in all reality, you can boil this series of tests down to three different tests that John repeats. He repeats each of them more than once. There's a devotional test. There's a social test and a doctrinal text. A devotional test, a social test, and a doctrinal test. And the last two Sundays, we looked at 1 John 1, 5 through 10, and 2, 1 through 6, and we actually saw the first devotional test. John was saying, if, if you want to know whether or not your faith is genuine, look at your devotion to God. Do you confess your sins? Are you growing in obedience to Christ? Do you follow his example? It's a devotional test, and we'll see it come up again later. We'll also see another test later, coming up actually really soon, the doctrinal test. John is going to go on to say something like, if, if you want to know whether or not your faith is genuine, look at the doctrine you profess. Do you believe and confess that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe and confess that he has come in the flesh? If so, that ought to give you assurance. But here and in other places, John gives this social test. The test of our love for one another in the church. Christians are those who love other Christians. 
If someone calls themselves a Christian, but they don't love other Christians, they're either lying or deceiving themselves. Because Christians always love each other. There's a supernatural bond between Christians because of Christ's work for us and in us. Therefore, Christians love one another. If you want to know whether or not you're an authentic Christian, this is one way you can test your authenticity. Look at what John says, starting in verse 9. He says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. One of the things that's so striking about this John is being very black and white. It's light or darkness, love or hate. There's no in-between. There's no love, indifference, and hate. There's no love, apathy, and hate. There's love and hate. There's no mushy middle category for indifference toward a brother or sister And Christ, there's no mushy middle category wherein you can be apathetic toward a brother or sister in Christ. It's an either or. Either you love your brothers and sisters in Christ or you hate your brothers and sisters in Christ. And to not actively love them then must mean to hate them. We either walk in the light or in the darkness. So the way that someone hates another is simply by not actively loving them, and that includes being indifferent or apathetic toward a brother or sister in Christ in your life. Furthermore, notice that, that John says that, that, what one, that, what, that what reveals one's authenticity as a believer is it's not merely what one says, but the way in which one acts toward their brother or sister in Christ. He sets somewhat of a, a portrait up, a, a portrait of someone who says one thing, but whose behavior testifies to something else entirely. It's a portrait of someone who's a big talker, but not much of a walker. Verse 9 says, whoever says, says he is in the light, that's words, but hates his brother, so actions, what you actually do and exhibit, is still in darkness. There's a portrait of someone who confesses faith in Christ. They're a part of their local church, but he hates his brother. And the word hates is is used in the present tense, giving a, a, a picture of an ongoing, settled attitude and action toward their brother. And this ongoing, settled attitude or action proves that this person is absolutely self deceived, John says. In verse 11, he's he's in the darkness and he walks in the darkness and he doesn't even know where he's going because he's been so blinded by the darkness. He's spiritually blind. He stumbles around in the dark, completely ignorant of the fact that he has, he's no true believer. He assumes he is, but he's blind, deaf, and dumb to the things of God. Contrast, though. Sandwiched between verses 9 and 11 is verse 10, wherein we see a portrait of someone who walks in the light, and their proof is not merely that they say they walk in the light, or that they say they love their brother or sister in Christ, but they actually love their brother or sister in Christ. 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. He doesn't merely claim to be in the light. He is in the light. And his love for the people of God proves it. He doesn't stumble into living wrongly or thinking wrongly. He doesn't cause others to stumble. He's not blind. He's in the light. That describes the Christian, the Christian life. It's not an absolute embodiment of Christ's love since we can never measure up to our sinless Savior. But we are called and do like little mirrors reflect his love to one another and to the world around us. We might be cracked mirrors. We might be dimly lit. There might be smudges. When others look at us, they're to see the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Does this describe you? Test yourself. Does this describe you? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? You might wonder what that looks like. So before we conclude, we're going to briefly look at practical ways that love is expressed and lived out among the church. And as we do, measure yourself, test yourself by these. But not only that, also, if you're not actively loving your brothers and sisters in Christ in this way, let me exhort you, begin to. First, we love one another by praying for one another. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching about love and hate and neighbors and enemies and all that, and he says something very interesting. He says, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, But I say you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. Love your enemies and pray for them. He's talking about your enemies, but how much more ought this to be true for those who are your brothers or sisters in Christ? He says you're not supposed to hate your enemies, but love them and pray for them. One way, then, of loving your enemies is that you pray for them. And if praying for our enemies is one way that we actively love them, then we can also conclude that praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ is one way that we can actively love them. So let me ask you, do you you pray for your brothers and sisters in this church? Do you pray for them? This is a practical expression of your love for one another. Are you praying for one another? Furthermore, if if you aren't praying for others within this local church, let me exhort you to begin right away. Because praying for others is not only an expression of love for others, it also cultivates love for others. It cultivates love. I so much appreciate the words of, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He once wrote in this book, wonderful little book, life together. He says, a Christian fellowship lives and exists by its intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. His face that hitherto may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed in intercession and to the countenance of a brother for whom Christ has died, the face of a forgiven sinner. Members of Veritas, please pray for one another. Secondly, we, we love one another by serving one another. And Paul says in Galatians 5.13, you were called to freedom, brothers. 
Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Through love serve one another. One way we actively love one another is by serving one another. Again, this comes right from the life and teaching of Jesus. He taught it and more. He, he demonstrated it perfectly. And actually, John 13, the very same chapter, we find this new commandment from Jesus. We see him demonstrate it. You see, he and his friends, the 12, they were at supper together, including Judas, who betrayed him, Peter, who would deny him, and the rest who would abandon him. They're all there. And all of them, their feet are dirty. You know, of course, in first century Greco-Roman world, they didn't have paved sidewalks and streets like we do. They didn't have boots. They didn't have Nikes or Chucks. They had dirty, muddy, animal excrement-filled roads to walk on and rope sandals on their feet. And so their feet would get disgustingly dirty. And so someone would have to wash people's feet before they entered into someone's home. You don't want that stuff getting tracked all over your house. It's nasty, getting all on your carpet. Disgusting. And so, in fact, you know, they, they would always have someone wash feet when you arrived to someone's home in such a way. And in fact, it was only culturally acceptable for the most lowly of servants and slaves to do it. Jews of the day actually taught that no Jew should ever wash other people's feet, even if they were a servant or a slave. It was too far beneath them, they said. It was a task only to be done by the most lowly of servants, the servant of servants. So you can imagine everyone in the room, everyone's there for supper, their feet are dirty, they're all looking around, figuring out, who's going to do this? I'm not going to do it. You don't want to track the dirt and the mud and excrement into peop- you know, this person's house. There's no servant lowly enough wash the feet except Jesus. So what does he do? He takes off his clothes down to his undergarments. He grabs a towel and a basin and he kneels down to wash the feet of these men who would abandon him and deny him and betray him. And then he says this to them. He says, I've given you an example that you should also do to one another just as I have done to you. Just as I've loved you, you also ought to love one another. Through love, serve one another. We love one another by serving one another. Third, and to get a little more specific, we love one another by meeting one another's needs. John will go on to say later in 1 John, by this we know, love. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Regardless, I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican or whatever. If you don't give your brothers in need their needs, the love of God does not abide in you. Indeed, we see this in the, in the book of Acts, a church marked by such compassionate care for one another. There's no one needy in their midst. 
No one lacked food or clothing or shelter because they met one another's needs in such a generous and compassionate way. I wonder, how how do you respond when needs come up in the church? When a tangible or monetary or practical need, do do you jump at the opportunity to use your time and talent and money to help or do you assume someone else will get it? It's not my problem. Helping meet one another's needs is a sign and expression of love for one another, which is a sign of authentic Christianity. Do you love by meeting the needs of others within this church family? Now, we we could go on for a long, long time. We'll finish up here, fourth and last. We love one another by forgiving one another. Here's the reality. Because we are not a perfect embodiment of Christ's love, but rather mirrors, cracked, dimly lit, smudged, imperfect expressions of it, imperfect reflections of it, we're going to fail in loving one another. We're going to fail in praying for one another. We're going to fail in our endeavors to serve one another. We're going to fail in meeting one another's practical needs. We have failed and are going to fail one another in so many different ways. In Ephesians 5.2, the Apostle Paul exhorts us. He says, walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us. It sounds so familiar, doesn't it? This is a sort of summary that the Apostle Paul gives. He summarizes the series of exhortations that he previously gave in chapter 4. The last of which is this. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Likewise, Proverbs 17, 9 says, whoever covers an offense seeks Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Likewise, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 8, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, one way we love one another in our local church family is by forgiving one another. Not holding grudges not holding someone's sins over their heads, not making them earn their way back into our good graces, not staying up at night, nursing resentment, nursing bitterness, not rehearsing in our minds what we could have said or should say, not not staying up at night thinking, how can I set this person straight? We forgive because we love. And we love because we have been so loved and forgiven. God has given, he has forgiven all of our sins in Christ Jesus. They're no longer ours to bear. Our guilt has been drowned in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that drives us to love one another by forgiving one another that we may be like our Savior who has served us and given himself as an offering for our sins. These are ways in which we should and can and do love one another. Of course, there's more. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does it boast? Does that describe you? Do you serve the least of the brothers as you would serve Christ himself, the poor, the imprisoned, the hungry, 
Do you bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things? 1 Corinthians 13, just read the whole chapter that describes love perfectly. Do you speak the truth in love? These reveal the authenticity of our love for one another, which reveals the authenticity of our faith. If you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you can have assurance this morning that you belong to Christ and that he belongs to you. You can have assurance this morning that eternal life is yours. You have passed from darkness and into light. Christ has snatched you from the grip of Satan and brought you into the domain of his kingdom. It's not self-confidence. It's not assuming. It's not introspective navel-gazing. It's taking God at his word. Trusting that he has begun a good work in you and that he will bring it to completion trusting that he has transformed us and is still making us more and more like his son. It's trusting that we are who God says we are. His very own children of light, brought into the family through his great love so that we might love one another. Let's pray. Father, you have loved us. You You don't merely have love. You are love. You are pure, infinite, incomprehensible, immeasurable love. Would you help us to reflect that reality to one another and to the world? The world may know that we are Christ's disciples. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a few moments for quiet reflection before coming to the table.